In this episode, Oklahoma considers, what are melons? Ben Franklin is a patron of the farts, and Emily crashes a dinner party. Welcome to Fax Machine. Hello there, my name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts Emily, Hi. and Rob. Hello. In this episode, we'll be talking about fruits and vegetables, what they are, which are which, and why we should all eat more of them, or less. Some of them are poisonous, but we'll leave that for the blind tasting section later in the episode. <laughs> Just kidding. But as usual, the three of us will share three fruit and veg themed facts and wrap things up with a pub style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. Before we get started, check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And while you're listening, please swipe over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you're listening on and give us five stars. You can also leave us a review telling us what you liked about the episode and we'd love to hear from you. And with that, Emily, take it away. This week I learned that Pythagoras hated fava beans so much that they killed him, and it's thought now that he hated them because they could kill him, but they didn't actually kill him for the reason that we think they could have killed him. Let me explain. What, <laughs> what the fava are you talking about? Hey, hey Emily, do me a fava and please explain yourself. <laughs> so... First, to start with just fava beans and their whole deal. So they're also known as broad beans. And I imagine you guys have seen them before, maybe eaten them. They're like those big, flat, like bright green guys. Um, and I haven't had them that much in my life. From what I recall, they're kind of bland tasting, but maybe I just haven't eaten them well. I don't know. But cool thing about them, they've been cultivated and eaten by us humans for a really long time, with evidence going back uh, to suggest that they've been in our diets since as early as 6,000 BC. And actually, until 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, they were the only bean that was eaten in Europe. So like black beans and green beans and all other sorts of beans didn't arrive in Europe until after the age of exploration. So when you read about beans in ancient or older texts, it was always fava beans. Um, and part of their ubiquity and longevity in Western diets stems from their biology. So they're exceptionally reliable and hardy and capable of growing through cold weather and droughts, which made them a food source that could sustain people through poor harvests. So actually, a historical example of this was in Sicily. So they experienced a severe drought in the Middle Ages and prayed to St. Joseph for rain, which did eventually come. But in the meantime, they staved off famine thanks to the survival of their fava beans. So as a consequence of this famous story, fava beans are now a seminal part of their traditions for the Feast of St. Joseph. So they're featured in dishes and altars and even little fava-shaped cakes are made as part of the celebrations. Um, but this religious and mystical significance actually extended to ancient civilizations as well. So to the ancient Egyptians, fava beans were viewed as a form of currency for offerings to the gods, and they were so holy that priests had to abstain from consuming them. And Roman priests followed a pretty similar set of principles with them as well, as they were associated with death and also used in funerary rituals. So these fava beans were... Well, magic beans, um, <laughs> for all intents and purposes. We should rename our podcast Magic Beans Talk. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what is our cultural fava bean nowadays? <laughs> what, is the, what is the equivalent? <laughs> Avocados. So, <laughs> Like how in the ancient days, all like the young generations were having fava bean toast. 
<laughs> that way, it's because they couldn't get a mortgage on the, I don't know, Parthenon. The, yeah. <laughs> it was like 3000 BC, and they're like, millennials losing all their money. <laughs> so, taking out loans. 1000 BC. <laughs> taking out loans on their chariots. <laughs> they're eating too many fava beans. <laughs> you need to take out so many timeless. loans to go to Lyceum. Back in my day, you could just get a summer job. <laughs> Okay. So various properties of fava beans, some real and some mystical, lent them these sort of symbolic connotations to life, death, and even the afterlife across ancient cultures. Suffice to say, they reigned supreme among legumes for much of Western history, amounting to far more than a proverbial hill of beans. But there was one prominent figure who would disagree with this, and did, quite vocally, Pythagoras, Greek philosopher and mathematician of triangular theorem fame. So, while he's remembered now for his contributions to mathematics and music theory, uh, he's less remembered for his position as a cult leader, though I'm still holding out for that Netflix documentary. <laughs> so, he was the head of the cult of Pythagoras, uh, and his followers were called Pythagoreans. And they did typical cult stuff by, you know, today's standards, hashtag just cult things. So, it started out <laughs> as a commune in the 6th century BC in what is now the city of Crotone, Italy. Um, those satellite communities cropped up. Uh, following that. It was also an exclusive invite-only kind of deal, but they admitted women, so fuck yeah, called Pythagoras for that. Um, newly initiated followers had to learn and study Pythagorean teachings, so a lot of kind of like behavioral morality stuff, of course, like math and geometry, music, astronomy, uh, and they had to do these studies for five years in complete silence and then pass a test to be admitted to the inner circle, which I have to say, like studying really intensely for five years and having no social life and then passing a test to be admitted to some sort of like <laughs> echelon of academia it sounds a little bit familiar to me i don't know about you guys <laughs> yeah. um that's, that's a very different <laughs> that's a very different idea of greek life in school yeah. <laughs> <laughs> original greek life I told you guys about how i was the president of new Rosai in college <laughs> which is actually the neuroscience honor society oh, <laughs> that is a good one <laughs> so wow. so uh, oh, and the Thackerians were also notable ascetics. So they lived kind of like a very sort of pure, simple life with the idea that it could then earn them reincarnation. So that involved dressing very plainly and eating a strict vegetarian diet with one notable exclusion, no fava beans. They couldn't eat, touch, or even speak of them, per Pythagoras' teachings. Wow. And another very critical... Uh, sort of reflection of how much he hated fava beans that I alluded to at the beginning of my fact involved his death, which one might describe as a fatal game of the floor is fava. So... <laughs> Anthony, please do not spit that water out on the equipment. <laughs> that was the worst timing. I'm like, let me just sneak a quick drink. <laughs> you gotta stay on your toes. Shit. Oh my God. <laughs> So yeah, basically, through the establishment of his school slash commune in Crotone, Pythagoras ascended in the local political scene as well. Um, he's appointed city council and as a consequence made some political enemies, um, including one guy named, uh, this nobleman named Cylon. And he wasn't too keen on the Pythagoreans and their political influence, and also he'd been rejected by them. So clearly this is more a case of sour grapes than anything else. But in 495... Sour beans. <laughs> sour beans. There we go. But in 495 BC, he led an angry mob uh, to ambush and completely destroy 
destroy the Pythagorean school. Um, they also killed a bunch of Pythagoreans, and including, by some accounts, Pythagoras. So according to legend, while he was being chased by said angry mob, he avoided an escape route that would have taken him through a fava bean field. <laughs> and the detour actually resulted in him being captured and murdered. Wow. wow. So he was like, I will sooner like get caught and killed than run through this field. because. Well- Fuck <laughs> Before you are too sympathetic for the Pythagoreans who suffered this terrible fate, you should also know that there's a story about them murdering someone uh, for the crime of discovering irrational numbers. Oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. What? Um, so basically, uh, there's this, uh, it's sort of a convoluted, probably legendary story, but basically the story goes this guy, Hippasus, who um, is sometimes credited with the discovery of the existence of rational numbers, either by somehow demonstrating that the square root of two is irrational or by something about circumscribing a dodecahedron and something blah, 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 irrational, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Anyway, though, um, so the story goes that for either discovering it and uh, messing up the Pythagorean view that all numbers should be expressed as the ratio of integers, that irrational numbers can't be expressed that way. Um, They were so shocked by that, they drowned him. Or Hmm. this was discovered by the Pythagoreans, and they thought it was so holy that to divulge its existence, or the knowledge of its existence, was basically just absolutely anathema to them. And so because this guy, Hippasus, or possibly someone else, who knows, um, divulged this secret, then he was drowned. Either way, it doesn't end well for Hippasus. (laughs) Yikes. Paints very different pictures of the Pythagoreans, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Anyways, so over subsequent centuries, uh, other ancient scholars and philosophers like Aristotle, Diogenes, Cicero, uh, the poet Horace, longtime friend of the pod, Pliny the Elder, uh-huh. proposed all sorts of explanations for Pythagoras' infamous aversion to fava beans. Um, and just to kind of feature a few of my favorite ones that I stumbled upon. Uh, so one was that the beans reflected the Pythagoreans' preference for oligarchy and that beans were used to cast electoral votes um, in ancient democracies. So by avoiding beans, they're like sticking it to democracy. Additionally, hmm. um, I saw an explanation that they look like both male and female genitalia, which... Sure, I mean, it's a bean. I guess you can Look, be imaginative. they were math nerds. They don't know a lot about genitalia. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, or they resemble human heads, none of which Pythagoras found appetizing, even when paired with a nice Chianti. They also might were thought to contain the souls of the dead because they were kind of fleshy looking um, and also had this sort of like weird like appearance and hollowness of their stems and spooky looking flowers that made people think they were a conduit for souls to Hades. Mm-hmm. Um, Just like male genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rob, keep your, <laughs> keep your conservative like, sex negative beliefs at home. Um, Uh, Additionally, I saw this one only in one place, and it just is very weird to me, so I'm not totally sure how true it is, but um, there was one positive explanation that chewed fava beans smell like the spilled blood of murder victims when left out in the sun, and that was off-putting, which... How did they distinguish between (laughs) murder victim blood? Exactly! I was like, I have so many questions and don't want to know the answers to any of them. I mean, they would know. (laughs) They were murdering a lot of people. That's true. You walk into the kitchen, and you're like, oh, is that the blood of a murdered person? <laughs> smells like the irrational no, just, guy. What's just up making with fava beans. <laughs> um, and lastly, and one that I think at least holds some truth to it, um, they make you gassy and therefore can be a distraction from solving important geometrical equations. Um, per Diogenes' rendition of this explanation... One should abstain from fava beans, since they are full of wind and take part in the soul. And if one abstains from them, one's stomach will be less noisy, and one's dreams will be less oppressive and calmer. Which I just love the saying of, like, to be 
be full of wind. Like, oh, excuse me. It appears I'm full of wind. Sorry. Definitely saying that from now on. I like the conflation of flatulence and nightmares. <laughs> I mean, depends on the severity of the flatulence. I suppose if you're... You get Dutch ovened while you're asleep. <laughs> Shite terrors. <laughs> there is a more logical explanation, and one that Pythagoras would likely appreciate being a mathematician, that's been put forth by modern day historians, and it's that Pythagoras suffered from a genetic disorder called favism, whose symptoms are, as the name suggests, triggered by eating or even just inhaling the pollen of fava beans. So favism was actually, and looking to it more, I was really surprised that I hadn't heard about it, but um, it's actually the most prevalent enzyme deficiency disorder in the world, um, and with the highest prevalence in people of Mediterranean descent, so particular to Greece, Italy, and Northern Africa. Um, and because the gene is carried in the X chromosome, it's more common in men, men, and women. Um, so it's a deficiency in an enzyme called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase that basically is involved in sort of helping cells uh, clear this reactive molecule called reactive oxygen species, um, which then helps them sort of avoid undergoing various stresses and damage that can actually resolve in them dying. So certain compounds that create a lot of reactive oxygen species are enriched in fava beans. So you who have this disease and this deficiency in this enzyme, when they eat fava beans, can actually have really severe reactions. Um, tied to a phenomenon called hemolytic crisis, which is essentially rupture of their red blood cells. So pretty bad stuff. But a pretty crazy thing about this is that it's similar to sickle cell in that it's one of those diseases that is so prevalent and was selected for over generations because it also imparts resistance to malaria. Wow. Yeah. Cool, right? I learned recently, I don't know if, I haven't read into this too much, but I read um, that kind of like sickle cell provides some sort of resistance or like sickle cell carriers have some sort of resistance to malaria Mm -hmm. that people think that cystic fibrosis may provide some resistance to tuberculosis yeah and that that it's kind of a similar thing i I haven't looked into that too much but it just the idea that there are like a multiple of these diseases out there that you know protect against these you know very very old diseases that are like yeah 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 well that's the crazy thing about favism too where as long as people are diagnosed with it and if they have hemolytic crises are treated appropriately in time in a timely way if they just avoid eating fava beans then they can be fine for the rest of their lives but have this resistance to malaria but at what cost emily (laughs) (laughs) what is a life without without fava fava beans beans. well pythagoras was apparently totally fine with it so I will say that what I mentioned about Pythagoras and favism is, of course, speculative. You know, we have no way now of proving whether he suffered from the disease or not. But if he did, it would suggest that he had good reason to advise his followers against eating fava beans and that we might add a contribution to ancient nutrition science to his record of accomplishments. And thus, while Pythagoras' opinions on fava beans ran perpendicular to dogma, he may well have been informed by some acute observations, even though his decision to square off with the fava bean field put him among the angles. I thought you were... Oh, wow. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the decision was obtuse. <laughs> really obtuse. Yeah. obtuse? I thought you were going to oh. say the decision was obtuse. No, no and I... No we both I, were expecting. We, were we like, made eye contact that literally said to each other, <laughs> obtuse. But ABC, none of those are obtuse oh. angles. Oh, fair point. Yeah. You're a square, Emily. (laughs) This week I learned watermelon is a vegetable. 
And then I had to unlearn it because it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a story about business interests, common understanding of technical words, and a willingness to use democracy to subvert information. Uh, So Satire. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would never happen. Uh, but let's go to let's go to the beautiful state of Oklahoma. Everywhere else in the world, watermelon is considered a fruit, but in Oklahoma, the watermelon has been officially declared a vegetable. How? Um, <laughs> it's a great okay okay. How, Rob? <laughs> you might ask. So it's what? How? <laughs> so it's not just any vegetable. It's Oklahoma's state vegetable. Wow. But the, so the House of Representatives passed the bill. 78 to 19, proposing that it should be the state vegetable. And then it went to the governor, who had to pass it, which he clearly did. And it's just such a ridiculous story. And so the question is, why not make it the state fruit? Well, they already have a state fruit. It's the strawberry. (laughs) It's not a fruit. (laughs) I mean, the strawberry is a... Well, it's, yeah. It's a fruiting thing, but it is a weird fruit, to be sure. The thing you think of as the fruit and the strawberry is not the fruit. The yeah. seeds are the ovaries. The It's an aggregate fruit. It's You know what? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but as we'll see, Oklahoma doesn't give much of a damn about botany. <laughs> so let me tell you about Senator Don Barrington, who sponsored the bill. Uh, after the vote, he said, The controversy on whether watermelon is a fruit or a vegetable has been officially decided by the Oklahoma <laughs> legislature. <laughs> To which botanists everywhere said, Controversy? No! (laughs) There was no controversy until you voted to make it a thing that it's not. Um, So he he told uh, reporters before the vote happened that while watermelon was a fruit, it's also a vegetable because it's a member of the cucumber family. (laughs) Which is, first of all, cucumbers are fruits. (laughs) So if that was true... It wouldn't be good logic, but it's also not a member of the cucumber family. And this is just annoying, bad logic all the way down. And so Don Barrington was a Republican who in 1994 won a local contest for spitting watermelon seeds the farthest. So you could say he was not an unbiased third party. He was, right. So he big was, watermelon was at play here in oh some yeah. form. He was okay. deep in the pockets of big watermelon. <laughs> Um, which he actually said because um, he his constituency was from Rush Springs. Rush Springs is the watermelon capital of the U.S. Wow. And so he very clearly said, if we were to make this the state fruit, Rush Springs would get a lot of money. <laughs> Put Rush Springs on the map. <laughs> yeah, for once. Um, other senators in the state, including Nancy Riley, said in a statement, my dictionary says a watermelon is a fruit, sir. To which he said, I guess it can be both. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, really what I've done is I found this story and just collected all the awful quotes of people disregarding scientific taxonomy in every imaginable way. Um, Another one was Representative Joe Dorman of Rush Springs, the watermelon capital of the world. Obviously. Um, (laughs) This one is particularly insulting. Dorman's told the Tulsa world, some people used to think the earth was flat. They've been educated, and things became much better. <laughs> As his oh, I def- got bad news for him. <laughs> now we know it's shaped like a watermelon. <laughs> hey, that old blade spheroid over there is a vegetable. <laughs> but th- this is my favorite one, and the one that I spent the most time reading up on. Steve Thompson of the Oklahoma Department of Agriculture, Food, and Forestry 
wrote a letter to the editor of the Tulsa World explaining that growers in the U.S. consider the watermelon to be both a fruit and a vegetable. He says botanically, the watermelon is a fruit, but he said because it's a member of the gourd family, it's a relative of vegetables, like a cucumber or a squash. And first, I don't know what it is about cucumbers that everyone is so convinced that they're vegetables <laughs> yes. that it's like the go-to example. But neither cucumbers nor squashes nor any gourds are vegetables. Well, this is this gets to like the whole is a tomato a fruit or vegetable debate yeah. because right, the yeah. it's this distinction between what is botanically a fruit or a vegetable and what is like and from a culinary perspective. But what's interesting is if I said fruit salad to you, plus or minus watermelon. Like watermelon is one of the key fruits I think of in a fruit salad. Really? Yeah. Along with like most melons. Okay. Um, can you? What other you melons can you name? What are your top ten melons? Uh, I'd go cantaloupe. I would go uh, honeydew. Ugh, probably throwing a little pineapple in there. Um, not a melon, but Dude, just fruit salad ingredient. Is that? Is and that then grapes. Rank order, like an order of favorites, because come on, pineapple is no, like I, scores better than honeydew. I was going spectral. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but so I, I went down a rabbit hole on Steve Thompson because. Mm-hmm. Here was a guy whose job was basically being the agriculture secretary of a state saying, like, yeah, it can be a vegetable. Who cares? Steve Thompson uh, went to OSU and studied agricultural education economics. He knows what a fruit and a vegetable is. Um, His current job is actually the director of public policy for Oklahoma City. Let me tell you what his job summary is on LinkedIn, because I found him (laughs) on LinkedIn. Okay. For the uh, director, he's gonna of- see on his emails on LinkedIn, like oh, Rob Frawley, <laughs> host at Fax Machine Podcast. Did right. you at least this is what I lead with? Did, did you at least log out of LinkedIn? No, never. Oh, rookie move. <laughs> no, I want. I would love for him to find out. Yeah, and I, I just want to bring this up because the reason I want to talk about Steve Thompson is because when you Google Steve Thompson watermelon, you would imagine there's only one person, but. There's not. There's another Steve Thompson in the watermelon field. Wow. The watermelon <laughs> field. <laughs> oh. But so Steve Thompson uh, is the elderly Steve Thompson, judge of the Pardeeville, Wisconsin Watermelon Festival Seed Spitting Contest. Wow. Whoa. So I watched the whole YouTube video in which Steve Thompson, the elder, is interviewed about his like 40 plus years as a participant and judge at the speed sitting contest. S- seed <laughs> sitting. <laughs> speed <laughs> sitting contest. <laughs> That you ready? Set, go. We're making that video. And the International Speed Sitting Championships. Here are the contestants lining up in front of their chairs. And go. Oh, look at that. Oh, man. Too close to call. we got to bring up the slow-mo you know, video I, recap. I do feel like the best and way. We have a I feel like the best way to judge the winner of that would be whoopee cushions. <laughs> <laughs> just like set to different tones. And it's just like the first one you hear. <laughs> We might be onto something. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a, another total aside. Can you guess what the record is for a 9 to 11-year-old boy spitting a watermelon seed in Wisconsin? A mile. <laughs> <laughs> Price is right, rules. <laughs> Five feet. Five feet? Okay, okay. Uh, let's go with... I'm going to go with... Ten feet. Like 30 <laughs> yards. Okay. So Noah's at least playing ball with me. Here. <laughs> really? So 10 feet is fairly short, I would say. But I was stunned to find that a 10-year-old boy had spit a watermelon seed 55 feet. Oh, what? wow. Yeah. Which Almost 20 ins- yards. Yeah. And let me, let me put it in context that 
in terms everyone would understand. If you were standing at the Olympic swimming pool on one side and you spit a watermelon seed, you would fly over Ryan Lochte and Michael Phelps's head in the center lanes <laughs> and you would land in the ninth furthest lane away from you. Wow. So this is from the side. Yeah, from the side. I was definitely okay, picturing you spitting like... the entire length of the pool. I... <laughs> <laughs> it's a little longer than that. But oh Well, how do you think they fill the pool? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the thing that, that really got me about this whole watermelon affair was that so many articles I was reading about fruits and vegetables like to say, scientifically speaking, or botanically, watermelon <laughs> are fruits. As if to say that there's like the scientific world and then like the real world. Like, mm-hmm. I could say, like, scientifically, yes, your pet is a dog, but clearly in real world, that's just a hamster on a string. Like, <laughs> anyone can see that. <laughs> Some dogs do look a little bit more like hamsters than dogs. Yeah. And who's to say how sweet or savory your dog is? <laughs> oh, God. So a couple other quick things about Oklahoma's weird decisions in their, in their own house. Um, Oklahoma chose a state flower before achieving statehood. <laughs> which I thought was very prescient of them. So in 1893, they chose one. They became a state in 1907. Huh. Um, the flower they chose was mistletoe, which is not a flower. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Furthermore, it's a parasite. Yep, it is. Uh, said J.B. Thoburn, the curator of the state's historical society in 1930, it's not proper that the state should have for its emblem a mistletoe, a plant that clings to others and feeds upon them. Yep. And whose I name mean, comes from shit on a stick, lest we forget. <laughs> yeah. So back noble. To our, back to our holiday episode. <laughs> yep. And so they, they actually successfully changed that in 2004. Um, it became the Oklahoma Rose, which had failed twice before. Um, <laughs> okay. Another thing that people say about roses, um, they don't have thorns. Even, I'm just saying, even basically, princes? <laughs> no. Every so, rose has its thorns. No, no rose has a thorn because what, thor- what roses have are prickles. Thorns are like a woody outgrowth, and uh, a prickle is actually like a modified leaf, I think. Uh, okay. yeah. Rose has <laughs> its prickle. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't float quite as well. God. Mm. Okay. Oh, did I say prince? That's um, yeah. poison. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> That's bad. Um, Oklahoma State Rock Song. Um, which most states don't bother to choose. By I was going to say that's a that's a thing in a, in a few states. What's the Oklahoma state rock? Is it just moss? <laughs> <laughs> um, but their state rock song. They they held a um, they had a poll online. They nominated ten songs from Oklahoma based artists, um, and they they chose the song "Do You Realize" um, by the Flaming Lips, which is a fairly good rock song. It beat out "Heartbreak Hotel," which I thought was interesting, um, but I guess that's not a great motto, uh, like theme song, but. On the day that they announced it, Michael Ivins of the Flaming Lips uh, wore a star, uh, star and sickle logoed shirt to the Capitol. <laughs> and so at the last minute, they changed their minds and didn't vote the song in, um, creating an entire controversy. And so they signed it in to be the state song. The, like Basically, the governor like overrode the Congress and made it the state song by executive order. And then the next governor was like, screw this. This doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so they don't have a state rock song anymore. Oh. And Oklahoma is the only state in the United States to have a state meal, which is an entire, like, just... Isn't it just all, like, the state vegetables, state fruit, state steak, like, all these things together? all together. So it includes chicken fried steak, barbecued pork, fried okra, squash, cornbread, grits, corn, sausage, biscuits, and gravy. You'll notice... God, that's deadly. No watermelon. (laughs) uh, Oh, sorry. Black-eyed peas, strawberries, and pecan pie. So uh, no watermelon <laughs> in their state meal after making it their state vegetable. Um, 
the state beverage is also not in their state meal. And this leads me to a question. How many states do you think the state beverage is milk? Half. And half. <laughs> so other other options for that joke, 2%. <laughs> Jeez. That would be just Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a stunning 19. So wow. essentially, oh, <laughs> yeah, 40, 40% of states, uh, Arkansas, Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Minnesota, Nebraska, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Vermont, Virginia, Wisconsin. All okay. <laughs> the one I was waiting for was at the very end. <laughs> yeah, no. It's like, Wisconsin's not on that list then. Yeah, no, it belongs. Something's wrong. Okay. Rhode Island is coffee milk, which is like Hell yeah, it milk. is. Autocrat. <laughs> good stuff but like 19 states have milk as their official beverage yes that's <laughs> like that's so Barely. <laughs> this week i learned teddy roosevelt's eldest daughter carried around a snake in her purse named emily spinach hey <laughs> That is my vegetable-related fact. <laughs> and an Emily-related fact, so it's great. I'm okay with it. <laughs> so, so first off, let me tell you a little bit about Teddy Roosevelt's eldest daughter, Alice Lee Roosevelt. Her mother, who was also named Alice, was Teddy's first wife. Uh, and she died suddenly of kidney failure about two days after their daughter, Alice, was born. Mm. And 11 hours earlier, Teddy's mother had died of typhoid fever. So needless to say, it was not a good day. <laughs> and he was like deeply, deeply distraught, as you might imagine. He was so upset by her death that he rarely spoke about her ever again, going so far as to prohibit anyone saying her name and entirely omitting her name from his autobiography. Wow. So this made things really difficult for his baby daughter, who shared his late wife's first name, Alice. Yeah. And as a result, the two-day-old Alice became known as Baby Lee. And in a letter to his sister, Teddy referred to her as Mousykins. <laughs> which is a little weird, but is also a little cute. Okay. So when Teddy remarried, the relationship between Alice and her stepmother, Edith, was tense to say the least. Edith would routinely disparage Alice's mother, once telling her, quote, if Alice Hathaway Lee had lived, she would have bored Theodore to death, which is yikes, wow. not cool, bro. <laughs> um, did, yeah. did he hear I I this? don't know. But in what is... Certainly neither the first weird thing or the last weird thing about this family. Alice eventually became close to this awful woman, referring to her as mother and saying that, quote, that I was the child of another marriage was a simple fact and made a situation that had to be coped with. And mother coped with it with a fairness and charm and intelligence, which she has to a greater degree than almost anyone else I know, you know, spoken like someone who has been gaslighted beyond belief, (laughs) but... So after McKinley was assassinated in 1901, her father, who had been the vice president, assumed the presidency, and she became an instant celebrity who broke all the social rules imposed on women at the time. This is not surprising, because this is the girl who once said to her father when he tried to send her to a conservative women's boarding school, quote, if you send me, I will humiliate you. I will do something that will shame you. I tell you I will. (laughs) She was not having it. It's amazing. So... Um, she was a self-described pagan uh, who called Christianity sheer voodoo as opposed to being a pagan, yeah. which is literally voodoo, <laughs> although not literally, but whatever. Um, uh, she was known uh, in the press as Princess Alice, 
Um, and she was regularly seen smoking cigarettes in public, riding in cars with men, wearing pants, <laughs> chew- <laughs> chewing gum, God staying forbid. out late partying, and <laughs> placing bets with a bookie. And there's actually a scandalous photograph of her taken when she was collecting her horse race winnings from that bookie. Imagining with like a huge stogie like sticking out of her bottom lip. Like, yeah, basically. Uh, yes. And Fantastic. So she, she, there was this French newspaper that kept track of her social engagements over a 15-month period. She attended 407 dinners. Remember, this is 15 months. Wow. 407 dinners, 350 balls, and 300 parties. I don't know why they distinguish parties, balls, and dinners, but it, overall, it was quite a few events. So during this time when she was, you know, known as Princess Alice, and she was just having a grand old time being, you know, this like young, you know, early, you know, sort of late teens, early twenties socialite uh, during her father's presidency, she had this green, like I think it was a garden snake, and it was named Emily Spinach. And the only, like, the references I could find to it said it was named Emily after her, quote, spinster aunt. <laughs> and it was named Emily Spinach. <laughs> so, God, they're always named Emily, though. All the spinsters. Like, Ania, anyways. <laughs> anyway. Um, but current point it, of contention for then, me. Continue. The spinach, <laughs> the spinach part was because it was green. Um, and she would, like, put the, she would put Emily spinach under, like, when there was, like, a banquet or something. Like, you know, the silver metal thing that would go over the plate and cover it that it would be lifted up she would put the snake inside that and then so when people like lifted it up for the meal there would be a snake (laughs) she would do all these things she kept it in her handbag and like carried it around with her to like different like social events and would just take it out and show it to people um and and so it was just like it was just this this amazing like barrier breaking you know this like weird social taboo busting woman um whose companion was this little green snake that she would always carry in her handbag um, but this, that's not even the only snake related story about her because she, apparently <laughs> there's also this story where she was, uh, waiting for a train one time with a boa constrictor, like a boa constrictor around her neck and like the police were called and they had to ask her to leave. <laughs> and, like she's just doing what her dad always said, which is speak softly and carry a big snake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but she, I mean, she did a bunch of other amazing non-snake related things to do as well. So during a <laughs> 1905 diplomatic voyage to Japan, which she was inexplicably co-leading along with the Secretary of War, William Howard Taft. I Like, there's no, <laughs> there's no inexplicable. She's like the Ivanka Trump of her day. Like, she's like, it's like her in a room with like Theresa May and like, like Christine Lagarde. And she just keeps... <laughs> like jumping in, but yeah, but at least um, she had a snake in her purse. Yeah, at least at least she, <laughs> unlike Ivanka. <laughs> yeah, seriously, Ivanka. If you don't have at least a snake, I, although I do feel like she has Jared, and <laughs> Jared popping his head out of the of Ivanka's purse would be nice. He basically does look like a young Voldemort. Yeah, <laughs> it's the hair. So, so on this boat that they were taking to Japan, um, in front of like all the press, Alice jumped into the ship's pool fully clothed and convinced a congressman, Nicholas Longworth, to join her in the water. And they got married the next year. So She's how old here? Uh, she must have been in her 20s. Okay. Fair play. Yeah. <laughs> so this is 1905. She was born, she was born in, the, I think, the 1880s. So she would have been in her mid-20s. Yeah. 
But anyway, she had a long life as a DC socialite and lived out her dream life, best encapsulated by a line she wrote in her diary, which is in the Library of Congress, quote, I pray for a fortune. I care for nothing except to amuse myself in a charmingly expensive way. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Relatable. So pretty much sums her up. <laughs> I found this great quote that Teddy Roosevelt said about her, and he said, I can mind Alice or be president of the United States, but not both. <laughs> yeah, definitely I mean, she... determined to be the contrarian. I mean, with the yeah. like normal religion, nah, paganism. <laughs> Feather boas, nah, real boas. Like, <laughs> pet hamsters, seems nah, to be her snakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feed my pet with your pet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a snake eat hamster world out there. <laughs> All right, guys, it's time for our quiz. This quiz, according with the theme, will be all about different kinds of fruits and vegetables. It is that broad. Gorgeous. (laughs) Okay. Very good. (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because question one, we'll start with a simple one. Which of the following is not a berry? A, blueberries. B, chili peppers. C, tomatoes. D, blackberries. E, eggplants. Or F, Watermelon. It's blackberries. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Damn. Seeds on the outside. (laughs) Yes, so of course the answer are blackberries are not berries. Those are aggregate fruits. Botanically speaking, strawberries... Blackberries and raspberries are not actually berries. They are aggregate fruits, like I said, and that is fruits that develop from multiple ovaries of a single flower. However, blueberries, chili peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, watermelons are berries, uh, and along with avocados, bananas, grapes, and pumpkins. Yeah. Yeah. So question two. What U.S. president banned broccoli on Air Force One? <laughs> mm, I think that's a that's a Herbert Walker move. Okay. I mean, it, unless you have any inclination. No, I was thinking Reagan just because it sounds like something dummy would do. But like. yeah, <laughs> that's true. I mean, I think it happened between 1980 and 1992. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I mean, with that logic, Reagan is two-thirds of that time period. So if we want to go Reagan, I also think it could be a Reagan thing. So historically, we have this dynamic wherein we'll get the right answer, and then you'll be like, actually, let's not say that. So let's say H.W. Okay. <laughs> All right. George, George H.W. You are correct. Yes! Yay! <laughs> wow, it worked! Amazing! We yes, know ourselves. The answer is George H.W. Bush. In 1990, George Bush Sr. prohibited broccoli from being served aboard Air Force One, explaining, quote, I do not like broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't liked it since I was a little kid, and my mother made me eat it, and I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat any did more he, broccoli. Actual tell- quote from U.S. president. <laughs> which was a much more impressive statement <laughs> before this, this one. Satire. Um, (laughs) but um, still pretty amazing Um, so I mean you hear that and you're like what a nice story about a president not eating his greens how cute but what if I told you that that remark may have cost him the election Mm, whoa Um, because after that clip aired broccoli farmers in California where about 90% of broccoli is grown got wind of it so to speak and delivered 10 tons of broccoli to the White House in protest and during the 1992 campaign Hillary Clinton held a florid of broccoli along with a sign proclaiming quote let's put broccoli back in the White House and we all know how that election ended they sent it all to local homeless shelters, once again demonstrating their utter hatred for the poor. <laughs> Say what you will about her, but at least Marie Antoinette had the common decency to offer them cake. <laughs> so, so you're saying that Bush lost the California vote, 
which probably was no surprise. Well, Reagan won California. Well, that's true. Reagan won right. everything. <laughs> anyway, question number three. The ancient Egyptians held what vegetable to be an object of worship, believing that it symbolized eternal life due to its circle within a circle structure? Is it a fava bean? Or an onion? Circle within a circle. Oh, they don't really have that structure. Yeah. Circle within a circle. Uh, onions would make sense. They have lots of layers. You did mention fava beans were sacred to the Egyptians. You just got to think to yourself. They were, Ooh. but like, so were cats. Are yeah. they circle? Are they <laughs> circle? <laughs> the only thing that they found sacred. That's what you got to think about. Highly doubt it. Mm. Did they have onions or scallions? Like, was that a thing? I have no idea what they grew on the banks of the Nile. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, if you're thinking of like circle within a circle, then onions are the first thing that come to mind. At least. But there's, okay. So, but there could also be like a huge pit, like a cherry. Okay. Like, or any stone fruit for that matter. Hmm. It's eternal life, you said, right? Yep. Uh, I don't care. I, I'm i fine. <laughs> what? We're only three questions in, Rob. Rob's out. I give up. Uh, I'm on my own now. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. I think I like the idea of onions, onions honestly. I think they, they have like... A, and actually, and like you cut them open, they make you cry, and they're probably like, oh, they're magical. Mm. They make us cry. I buy life. it. Okay. I'm fine with onions. We'll go with onions. The answer was onions. Hey! You did it! Wow. <laughs> Ancient cool. Egyptian pharaohs were buried alongside onions, and paintings of onions can be seen inside pyramids and tombs throughout the Old and New Kingdoms. Egyptian priests were depicting holding, holding onions aloft, and onions have been frequently found in the pelvic regions, thorax, ears, and in place of the eyes in mummies. <sighs> So we're not done. (laughs) (laughs) Flowering onions have been found on the chest and onions have been found attached to the soles of the feet and along their legs. King Ramses IV, who died in 1160 BC, was entombed with onions in his eye sockets. They really, really, really liked onions. (laughs) Um, In fact, we know that onions were eaten in ancient Egypt um, from the Israelites, who were hungrily wandering the desert, reminiscing about the good food they had back in Egypt, saying, quote, We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. All the vegetables. Yep. (laughs) Um, And in fact, Egyptian onions were said to be some of the sweetest in the world. Um, However, Pliny the Elder wrote in his natural history that Egyptians forbade the consumption of onions due to their sacred status, which may go some way to explaining the friction between those two peoples. (laughs) 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 And anyway, for most of that information, you can think the National Onion Association, uh, or NOA, NOAA, uh, which wow. which was a great resource, although probably only for this question. Um, <laughs> you can find them at onions-usa.org. <laughs> onions- <laughs> also, in our recurring segment, Words That Mean Pearl, onion comes from the Latin unio, which means large pearl. Wow. Oh, yeah. there we go. So I have to say, it sounds to me like this burial process also is similar to like, I don't know, like... Were they supposed to live in the afterlife or like be someone's meal? Because you put something in the oven and you put like <laughs> yeah. a bunch of onions around it and then you cook it up. And I'm like, that sounds pretty appetizing. Like, this, uh, they <laughs> felt Maybe the... you get some fava beans and nice Chianti and we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> they thought that onions were both sacred and delicious. And I think they're mistaking funeral rites with stuffing. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I mean, they wear their eye sockets. So there you go. Yeah. What? <laughs> What's that have to do with it? Like stuffing? What, you make stuffing by shoving it up a turkey butt? Yeah, they found it in the pelvic regions. We already covered this. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. Question four. According to the 1811 edition of Francis Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which hey! we've mentioned before, 
What vegetable was once known in England by the slang term Munster plums? <laughs> it's just funny. Munster plums. Okay. Uh, could it be eggplants because they're dark purple like plums are? Not many things look like plums. I like it. So. Like in Munster being like ginormous plums. And also they didn't like the the, uh, the French and the French called them aubergines and the British now call them aubergines. But back then they were like, fuck you, we're not calling them aubergines. So they're monster plums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, That's, there's that, my reasoning. That could Set. definitely be the reasoning if they were plums, if they were, if they were eggplants, <laughs> but they're not. Damn it. Uh, okay. So I will, let's just say, we'll, we'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a hint. Um, do you know if Munster is a place? Uh, and where it is it's in germany right munster cheese it might be also in germany but the one i'm thinking of oh is in ireland oh oh okay so an huh. ir potato so is a munster plum a munster plum is a potato oh wow uh, according to the 1811 edition of the dictionary of the vulgar tongue or whatever so that it okay. was known uh by the slang term munster plums so munster is one of the provinces of ireland which makes up the southwest corner of the island um, Munster is the home of the town of Dingle, and uh, also has the highest concentration of people with the surname Barry. <laughs> so if you ever find yourself in Ireland, be sure where, be sure to ask where to find Dingle berries. I'm sure the locals will be happy to show you where to look. <laughs> okay. Question five. Um, during World War II, the British propagated the myth that eating carrots improves one's night vision in order to hide the secret use of what technology on board fighter planes that enabled them to shoot down German bombers at night? Radar? Yeah, it's radar. Okay. <laughs> um, it is a commonly held myth that eating carrots improves your eyesight. And while it has been demonstrated that eating vitamin A rich carrots can help restore vision in those who have lost it due to vitamin A deficiency, carrots wouldn't give the average person better eyesight. This myth was propagated by the British Ministry of Information during the 1940 Blitzkrieg, in which the Luftwaffe often attacked under the cover of darkness. However, the Royal Air Force had a top-secret weapon, the newly invented onboard airborne interception radar, which had the ability to locate German bombers before they had even reached the English Channel. So if the Germans had found out about this, the British would lose their advantage. And so in order to explain the RAF's success at shooting down bombers at night, they created a propaganda campaign that read things like, quote, Night sight can mean life or death. Eat carrots and leafy green vegetables rich in vitamin A, essential for night sight. Another one was, carrots keep you healthy and help you see in the blackout. Another one, <laughs> they created a, ca a cartoon character called <laughs> Dr. Carrot, the child's best friend. <laughs> and Dr. Carrot, child's best friend, had friends including Clara Carrot and Carroty George. <laughs> and these three characters were designed by Walt Disney. What? Yes, oh. they reached out to Walt Disney and asked for help, and he made these little he cartoons. He did all sorts of crazy propaganda. Yeah, projects. And now, it's yeah. right about oh the gosh. time when the carrot-loving Bugs Bunny was uh, debuted. Actually, the same year. Um, and so it really wow. makes you wonder. Although it wasn't Disney, but it was like right about that time. So I wonder if they got Warner Brothers involved as well. Carrots were just big. Wow. Yeah. Question six: What kind of lettuce did they serve on the Titanic? So the joke is that it's iceberg lettuce, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just so common. It it might be that annoying. Like you're sure it's not iceberg. You it's like a joke and it's like debunked. I I I think the pun it's the, the punchline is iceberg, but that's that's not true. 
Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this, uh, and we'll alter the question. It's definitely not iceberg. Okay. But why? Because it's disgusting. Oh nope. <laughs> because <Okay. laughs> it used to be called something else, and then the Titanic happened, and they changed the name to <laughs> iceberg. <laughs> they changed it to iceberg to celebrate <laughs> the Titanic. <laughs> no, you were you were so close. It was no, because iceberg lettuce can destroy a salad just as well. <laughs> But it, so it, it was, it is now known as iceberg lettuce, but it was not called that back then. Right. That so the, the, okay. the joke, make sure that I'm the joke is, you know, <clears throat> what kind of lettuce did they have on the Titanic? Iceberg. Ha ha ha. Right. But iceberg lettuce was called something else until 1930. Oh, so we mm. definitely know there wouldn't have been something called iceberg lettuce. It could be that sure. the lettuce they had there, I mean, there are lots of different kinds of lettuce. And so it's not mm. necessarily going to be this kind Uh what is now known as iceberg lettuce was known until 1930 as crisp head lettuce. Oh. Um, but there, as you said, there's romaine lettuce and other kinds. Um, but so lettuce was on the Titanic's first class lunch menu on April 14th, 1912, which was the day before it sank. Uh, and there were, uh, according to like the register, there were 7,000 heads of lettuce on board. Um, as I've said, iceberg lettuce wasn't known as iceberg lettuce until 1930, which was 16 years after the Titanic sank. Um, and so lettuce... And just adding to the other things that were sacred to the ancient Egyptians. <laughs> lettuce <laughs> was also sacred to the ancient Egyptians. Um, circles geez. and circles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and was associated with the reproduction god Min, M-I-N, um, easily identified in paintings as the one holding his erect penis in one hand and a flail in the other. So <laughs> this, is, this is a real thing. And apparently lettuce was thought to help the god, quote, perform the sexual act untiringly. Wow. So he needed iceberg to, uh, you know, that keep sounds him going. That like, sounds like a completely different propaganda campaign. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how did the ancient Egyptians start any intonations to this god? Let us pray. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Okay. So, question seven: um, What definitely not a vegetable on any level food did Congress push to classify as a vegetable in school lunches in 2011? Pizza. Pizza. Absolutely right. There was much ado in 2011 about a Republican House effort to count school lunch pizzas that contained two tablespoons of tomato paste as a vegetable serving. So, as we've discussed. <laughs> Wrong on so many levels. Right. Yep. Um, but this prompted House Democrats to absolutely lose their minds, <laughs> sending out a mass email containing the phrase, pizza is not a vegetable, <laughs> and, and alluding to a, quote, massive lobbying effort by the frozen pizza industry, and linking to a website they set up, mydemocrats.org slash pizza, which let people send messages to House Republicans reading, quote, dear House Republicans, pizza is not a vegetable. Sincerely, America. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, or inevitably, the eventual bill did not actually include pizza. So the, the pizza mass emailing campaign worked. So question eight, final question. What is the name of the vegetable, occasionally misrendered as sparrow grass, that was said by writer Marcel Proust to, quote, transform my chamber pot into a flask of perfume? Asparagus. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Sparrow grass, asparagus. Um, it was exactly. It was often, uh, <laughs> let's just say, transliterated in parts of England as sparrowgrass. Uh, with sense. Scottish natural historian John Walker writing in 1791 that sparrowgrass is so general that asparagus has an air of stiffness and pedantry. So Wait, you said his name was John Walker. Yep. 
That makes sense. Like, he was drunk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like this idea that like calling it asparagus is like, you're like, no, no, no. Did you know that it's actually, well, actually it's called asparagus, not sparrow grass. So you're like a jerk for saying it that way. But he, he was a jerk. <laughs> so as everyone knows, eating asparagus can make some people's urine smell really weird. Um, there are a great many quotes about asparagus urine with Proust's among the best. Um, but one of my favorite references is in a letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote to the Royal Academy of Brussels, Brussels sprouts also vegetable, um, <laughs> encouraging them Thanks. to find a cure for the noxious smell of farts, <laughs> not asparagus urine, but he does reference it in this. He writes, a few stems of asparagus eaten shall give our urine a disagreeable odor and a pill of turpentine no bigger than a pea shall bestow upon it the pleasing smell of violets. And why should it be thought more impossible in nature to find means of making a perfume of our wind than of our water? <laughs> So basically he's saying we can change the smell of our urine for better or for worse by eating certain things. Why is it that we can't find something to eat that makes our farts not smell bad? (laughs) And he goes on extensively. (laughs) Are there 20 men in Europe the happier for any knowledge they have picked out of Aristotle? What comfort can the vortices of Descartes give to a man who has whirlwinds in his bowels? (laughs) (laughs) The knowledge of Newton's mutual attraction of the particles of matter, can it afford ease to him who is racked by their mutual repulsion and the cruel distinctions it occasions? The pleasure arising to a few philosophers from seeing the threads of light untwisted and separated by the Newtonian prism into seven colors, we've heard, you know. Can it be compared with the ease and comfort every man living might feel seven times a day by discharging freely the wind from his bowels? especially if it be converted into a perfume for the pleasures of one sense being little inferior to those of another. Instead of pleasing the sight, he might deliver the smell of those about him. The generous soul who now endeavors to find out whether the friends he entertains like best claret or burgundy, champagne or Madeira would then inquire also whether they choose musk or lily, rose or bergamot and provide accordingly. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin, ladies and gentlemen. What the actual fuck? This is a privilege. I just want to say that this is a privilege that he later describes as, quote, a liberty of expressing one's scent immense, in which he actually has spelled sentiments, S-C-E-N-T hyphen M-E-N-T-S, sentiments. Wow. Yes. Uh, what a hero. Ben Franklin, friend of the pod. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you want to check out more from us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And you can find us on social media as well. I'm at Arcs and Sciences. Emily? At underscore E.M. Costa. And Rob? At Sweater Vest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyverson, Emily Costa, and AC Antonelli, with editing by Noah Guyverson. Sound engineering and theme music are by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.